Revelation 15 and 16 is where we are this week. We got a couple more weeks in Revelation. We've been here the last several weeks, last few months even. And uh, Drew, just, man, you crushed it last Sunday. Thanks for sharing. I appreciated your heart sharing last week. Um, but uh, we, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and which isn't, uh, for some of us, it's never been a book we've gone through. Uh, and so this is new for some of us. For others of us, this might have been something that you've studied, but maybe we've kind of given a different angle to it. Uh, nonetheless, we've approached Revelation with kind of four things in mind. First, we've recognized that it's a letter. It is written to seven churches with people that are in mind. So it's not, it can't be written to us and it uh, can't be communicated differently to us that in, a, in a way that it wasn't communicated to them first. And so we have to see it as a letter. We have to see it as an apocalypse that helps us in understanding that there's a lot of symbolism uh, within the book. And so we take that uh, with understanding, as we understand the genre of it, it is a prophecy, which means it's bringing comfort, it's bringing conviction, it's challenging us, it's bringing peace to us, it's reminding us of the perspective of God and his kingdom. And then lastly, it's a liturgy for worship. It's designed, if you read this book, and it doesn't draw you to understand Jesus more clearly, his heart for you, and the worship that he deserves, then I, I think we've missed the mark. And so this morning, we're going to be in Revelation 15 and 16. There's a lot of symbolism that we're going to be pushing through in this. Um, it's going to be sobering. And it's going to be merciful. And so we're going to feel both of those things uh, this morning. And, and we'll begin here. You know, Revel Revelation echoes the rescuing story of the Exodus. Um, for some of us that, you know, have studied the Bible or read the Bible or grew up in the church, um, you'd be aware of that story uh, called, uh, from the book, the second book of the Bible called Exodus. In the, the middle of it, we, we see... Um, not even the middle of it, the whole thing, we see 430 years of the Israelites being enslaved in this place called Egypt. Uh, and they begin to cry out to God for him to free them from the oppression of the pharaohs that they were um, being oppressed by. And so generation after generation after generation, the oppression increased, and they began to cry out more and more to God. And there was a Messiah figure. It wasn't the Messiah, but a, a shadowing of Christ that God raised up, and his name is Moses. And God sent Moses to Egypt before Pharaoh to deliver his people. Uh, out of this bondage that his people were experiencing in Egypt. And so there was this cry over and over again that we've echoed even in Revelation, how long, O Lord? There was a cry then and a cry in Revelation, how long, O Lord, until you bring uh, uh, rescuing? And so the Messiah figure confronts the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is like a dragon in the story of Exodus. And so we see 10 plagues that go forth throughout the book of Exodus. And it culminates in Israel being set free. And so you read and it's like, oh my gosh, they're set free. And then Egypt changes their mind and, and the Pharaoh chases after the Israelites. And then we see that moment in the Red Sea where it's divided and the Israelites go through. And then the sea swallows up the Egyptians. And so out of this oppression, out of this sorrow, out of this confusion, God's rescuing plan of mercy, which included the plagues, led to this vindication of his people. And it culminates in this song in Exodus chapter 15. And this is important to us because it's going to all be, um, there's, a, there's a template here that we're seeing as we're going to navigate through Revelation 15 and 16. So in Exodus 15, right after they're set free, they sing this song in Exodus 15. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. 
The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then fast forward to 11. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders. You stretched out your hand. The earth swallowed them. And so they, they sing this song after this moment that takes place. And so this is being echoed in the text we're going to find today. We're going to see a song. We're going to see judgments. And we're going to end with hope. And so Revelation 15, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this. Then I, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and, I, and also those who had conquered the beast, and its image in the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, uh, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. So, Father, as we get into this hefty text, God, I ask that you would bring clarity to our hearts. I pray that you would remind us of the truths of your justice and the truths of your mercy. I pray you draw near to us and move among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So another great sign takes place. We've even seen these signs happen over and over again. Again, uh, it's not what happens next, but what does John see next? This is not chronological. We're saying John sees this, and then he sees this. There's no necessary linear order to what he's seeing chronologically, but he sees a sign. He sees a sign, and here we see another one. And they would, It says that they sang the song of Moses, again, echoing what we just read in Exodus. And so he's echoing deliverance and hope and triumph. And this language is designed to anchor us. We're about to get into some thick stuff in Revelation 16. And the design of Revelation 15 is to be our anchor as we enter into Revelation 16. This, this song that's being sung here in Revelation 15 where it says, Just and true are your ways, O King of the Nations. They're stating, the church is declaring, Just and true are your ways, that God is just and that God is true. God is not going to wink at atrocities and sorrow. God is extremely reliable and will vindicate and bring forth justice. And so there's three points I want us to consider this morning. The first is this. The bowls that we're about to see symbolize God's holy wrath to justly deal with sin and evil. So 16.1, Revelation 16.1, it says this. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So we got symbolism. It's pretty gory, what we're seeing here. Uh, there's a literary device here called recapitulation. And so we see this throughout the book of Revelation. For those that are into literary form and genre, you might understand this a good bit. For others of us, we might not. So it's, it's this idea of you think it's over and then it starts over again. Like you think you've made headway 
in this book of Revelation, and all of a sudden, like, you get to Revelation 11, where the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And it's like, man, exclamation point, mic drop, it's done, the book's finished. And then Revelation 12, it's like, we see a dragon uh, having, having war with Michael the angel. And it's like, I thought we were done. And then we're back to seemingly the beginning. And so we have this, this idea where you think you've made progress, and it's back at the beginning. It's called recapitulation. It's this theme that we have where we think it's finished, and then it's not. I mean, the Lord of the Rings is like that. You have in one book, there's an ending of a, an epic battle where they've, they've come to the castle. And then the next, we see Frodo leaving the back door. And it's like... I thought we were finished, and now we're back at the beginning. We just watched a four-hour movie, and now we're back at the beginning, all over again, and then it repeats itself, and that's what's happening here. We feel that here. So we've heard this language again over and over again in Revelation 6. We see it seals. Are they finished? Is that it? No, we're back at it, and then in Revelation 11, we see the same thing, and so there's three similar moments, and the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, and now the seven bowls, and so why? Why is that the the case? Again, so much symbolism happening in Revelation. We see seven as a sign of completion. We see three as a sign of completion, and so all of them are ending in this crescendo, this buildup that's happening in the book of Revelation. So the bowls we read here in 16.1, they are unleashed. And bowls are a symbol for the justice of God upon the earth. The justice of God is being seen here upon the earth. And so the bowls, I'm not going to read all of this again. We passed it off to you in part to be reading as we navigate through this. And so I'm going to go kind of higher level here. These seven bowls look like this. There's a judgment upon the earth. There's a judgment upon the sea. There's a judgment upon rivers and springs of water. There's judgment upon the sun and the effects of humanity because of that. There's a judgment upon the throne of the beast and its kingdom. There's a judgment upon Euphrates, which is the upper portion of where these people are, and it's dried up. We see there's a judgment upon the air, and we see that in the midst of all of this, that God is just and that God is good. See, this has come about from the text uh, that we have found ourselves anchored in in Revelation 4 and 5. This isn't just a reaction. Again, if we go back to where we were several weeks ago, we know that there was one upon the throne. There was no competition to that throne. There were animals before the throne. One of those animals was a lion, which represented Rome. So Rome is sitting before the throne of this one, this ruler, this creator of all things. And by his side was a lamb that was slain. And in the scroll of the one on the throne, the lamb took that scroll and he began to pop off the seals. And those seven seals led to seven trumpets, and those seven trumpets led to seven bowls. And so we understand, we have to understand, that the Lamb is active in all that's happening here. He's bringing forth the final justice and judgment of God. And keep in mind, he's also the one that bore our just judgment upon himself. We'll get to that in a little bit. But we see that there, we have to understand the anchor of what's happening here See, mercy has been interwoven throughout what we're seeing here. He's so merciful as we are seeing this build up in Revelation. But this is the symbol of justice upon sin and upon evil. As in the days of Egypt when God sent plagues to bring liberation and justice. So John is saying that he will bring it to pass again. See, the wrath of God in this section of chapter 16, 15 to 16 is mentioned four times. 
And I get it. I understand that the wrath of God is a hard pill for us to swallow. It doesn't mean that he's filled with anger and rage. I know we can think of wrath like we maybe think of a guardian that we had growing up. Someone who reacted in fury, that had a short temper and they responded accordingly. That's nothing like God. God is transcendent. He is fully just. And so in his uh, response to evil and sin, he responds justly. It means that because of his justice, he must bring forth judgment, and his judgment is communicated as his wrath. So what is wrath, and why does it matter? We have to talk about this for a little bit because it's here in the text. Wrath, uh, maybe said here, will be on the screen. God's wrath in perfect harmony with uh, all of his divine attributes is the holy action is of re- retributive justice towards all whose actions deserve judgment. It's his response to evil and injustice. But I understand, and we understand, that this is becoming progressively unpopular. The wrath of God is something that we don't want to embrace. We're good with God being love. We're good with him being able to um, speak into uh, us doing whatever we want as long as he doesn't confront us with his authority. He can do as he pleases with what he wants as long as he's speaking into what I want to do with my own life because I'm the one in charge. But when we have to submit ourselves under his authority, we as a society, as a culture, we buck. In The Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was an intense sermon that he preached that in some ways kick-started The Great Awakening in Uh, in his day. And he focused specifically on the need for God's provision for rescue from judgment. He was very clear that God is loving, yes, but he's also just. And in his justice, he has to bring forth judgment because of his justice. One of the phrases he used, he says, those without Christ dangle over the flames of hell like a spider over a flame. That was the sermon that he used, and a a revival erupted in response, and a great awakening began in his day. And by contrast, our secular age has no palate for such statements. We feel uncomfortable even talking about it in the church. We feel uncomfortable talking about this. It confronts our mantra of being true to yourself. How can we be true to ourselves if we will potentially be judged by being true to ourselves. There's a collision course that's happening here. And so what we do is we settle for positive messaging, right? God can only be love. We reject him as holy. We end up creating an image that is not God, that is a God in our own image and our own likeness, and we allow him to be God, and that's not God. That's an idol. We have to submit to all of who he is if he is other than and allow his authority, his transcendent holiness to be the standard and the one who which we worship. So the conclusions, uh, the conclusions is best summarized. This conclusion is best summarized by the late Richard Niebar in 1937. He summarized it like this. If we go, like if we run down this path and we reject the notion that God is holy and we create an image uh, that's like us, more like us than like him, this is what we end up doing. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. See, when we begin to pick and choose what God is and what God isn't, 
we remove the beauty that he is. And if we remove his justice, we remove the need for the cross. Because it is his justice that demanded the cross, which is why it's essential for us. See, there is no need for a cross if there is no reality of God's holy justice. So the wrath of God is mentioned here to communicate that God is holy and must bring forth justice to evil and to rebellion. So these bowls are symbolic of that. See, God, he detests sin. He detests evil. He detests injustice and must deal with such things justly and completely. See, God will bring good and right justice to justly judge the guilty and to vindicate the victim. So the point, the seven churches are hearing this. Again, they're listening to this whole story as John sends these letters to these seven churches. And so the point is so clear to them that in the midst of God's judgment, what are they hearing? They're hearing this song. And the song says, just are you in your judgments. They're hearing this reminder that God is just in the midst of the pain of what they're seeing, the gory nature of the symbolism in Revelation 16. They're reminded that God is just in the midst of all of it. A reminder, these three Reminders throughout these, this text in Revelation 15.3. In the midst of this, it says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Revelation 16.4, it says, um, no, 16.5, it says, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. In the midst of the bowls being unleashed, the response is, You are just. And then in verse 7, it says, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So this is the message God is giving to the church. As they felt the cry, How long, O Lord? They said, Just are you. See, the justice of God matters. It's extremely important to us. See, we don't like God's wrath, but it is God's wrath that is necessary part of God's justice. And we would rather have the justice of God, if that means his wrath, than not have the justice of God, if that doesn't mean his wrath. We would rather have darkness and uh, all the sorrows of injustice dealt with, and if that means his wrath, then so be it. The justice of God. So that's the first point. The second is all are under God's wrath. This is the text we're in, ladies and gentlemen. So we are, we're hitting this, and I know there's hope for us on the other side at the back end of this time. So all are under God's wrath. Let's drill, drill into this more. And what I want to do in drilling into this more to better understand what's happening in Revelation is go to Romans chapter 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible, you can flip over there. We're going to unpack this together. So Romans was written by Paul to the church in? There you go. Good. So it's called Romans for a reason. It was written to people in Rome. So this is clear. This is where John is going. Rome has taken over the known world. And so he's writing this to the church in Rome. And in Romans 1, out of the gate, he writes to Christians to understand the righteousness of God. And so in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he kind of gives the thesis of where he's going. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in the gospel that Paul is communicating, again, he's communicating the gospel to the church. 
It's not something we graduate from. And so he's preaching the gospel to people that knew the gospel to remind them of the gospel. And in the gospel, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed. That God becomes the standard. Not a God who changes with cultural times. That he is our standard. And we don't become Uh, We don't therefore become righteous by our politics. We don't become righteous by our tribalism. We don't become righteous by our virtue signaling. We become righteous by him. God, our creator, is the standard. And then he goes on in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and he gives a little, or chapter 1, 2, and 3, and he gives some clarity. He says, he goes on and says that the wrath of God is for those uh, who have rebelled against God, and the wrath of God has been given to those who are religious, And we'll break those both down. And so the wrath of God first is revealed against all secular rebellion to God. Those who shun the creator, those of us who shun the creator, that we will be judged because of it. Secularism at its finest will be judged. And so let's read Romans 1, 18. Again, don't hear from me. Let's just go to the Bible. That's why we're here. Romans 1, 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain for them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we see here that there are two kinds of wrath taking place here. The wrath has been given, and there's two kinds of wrath, wrath so we need to understand. The first is passive wrath. The second is active wrath. So passive wrath is when God gives us over to what we want. And you want that? Passive wrath. You can have it. Instead of extending the spirit of conviction, and ex- uh, instead of sending a uh, heart of humility, he says, if that's what you want, you can have it. You want that power? Here. You want that career? Fine. You want to redefine sex to your desire? Go for it. You can have what you want. Do what you want and see the hollowness and even the horror of it. That's passive wrath. Have it. If that's what you want, you want to serve the creator or the creature rather than the creator? Passive wrath. And he's allowing passive wrath until the coming of Jesus where active wrath occurs. See, passive wrath culminates in the act of wrath, the day when Jesus will come and bring justice to the earth. So we will see Jesus, the creator. He will judge the living and the dead. He will break the curse. He will bring a kingdom that will have no end. He will bring forth the justice. And until then, passive wrath is given. And it's given to all who have rejected God as God. Rejecting God as God Wrath is theirs. But the wrath of God is also revealed to the religious. There's two, there's two ways you can run from God. You can run from God by rejecting God, or you can run from God by using things about God as your crutch 
and not leaning upon God alone. There's two different ways we can run from God. And he speaks to that in Romans chapter 2. It's not just secular rebellion that will receive the justice, the just judgment of God. It's also the religious. In Romans 2.1, it says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and and penitent, penitent, um, of course, the word that I was nervous about saying in front of you guys is the word that I screw up. Um, penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so he's not just referencing those that secularly run from God. He says that religion can become a crutch for you to now use to judge the world. And you can live in the same way in your heart as them, but you use your religion to pretend like you're better than somebody else. And he says, likewise, you too will be judged. Religious, uh, r- religion cloaked in power or cloaked in morality or cloaked in politics, those things that have nothing to do with, with Jesus, Religion, in this sense, can be just as damning as secular rebellion against God. So the wrath of God is for the secular rebels against God and those that use religion as a crutch to run from God, but to use his stuff as a means to use as power and morality over somebody else. And so it culminates in 3.9, Romans 3.9. says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So we're all in the same camp. If you find yourself this morning leaning towards the gutter of religion, welcome. If you find yourself leaning towards the gutter of secular rebellion against God, welcome. We all, apart from Christ, are under sin. This J.I. Packer says that God's wrath is his resolute action in punishing sin. So the wrath of God is given to those who choose to be under it, under each one of those gutters. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. Point three, all can receive the mercy of Jesus found at the cross of Jesus. Romans 3.21, it says this. Some would say this is the most significant paragraph in the Bible. What we're about to read here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is all have sins and fall short. We are all 
at the cross on a flat line, on a flat ground, side by side with each other, both religious, both secular. Whether you're an MSNBC watcher, whether you're a CNN watcher, whether you're a Fox News watcher, whether you're an anti-TV watcher, or whether you're a Joe Rogan listener, all, all of us are finding ourselves in this position. And all are freed, all are righteous, all are rescued by what? His redemptive plan, yes, Jesus, put forth through Jesus. We receive it by faith. I call it the sixth sense. I call faith the sixth sense. It's not seeing dead people, but it's a sixth sense. It's an ability to exercise this side of us, to trust in a God we cannot see. We have these five senses that we can touch, feel, taste, smell, hear, but it's this sixth sense of trust that allows us to lean upon someone else who's other than us. It's not a feeling but it's a a trust. It is a sense of trust in God, putting all of our heart in this one. And it says, faith through the propitiation, a big word, by his blood. See, everything in this text we just read is standing upon this one word, propitiation. And one of the most important sections in the Bible, we read this word, which is so pregnant with meaning and hope. Propitiation means averting the wrath of God by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. It's averting the wrath of God by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. See, God turned his wrath that was justly due us upon Jesus. He took the wrath that was due us, all of us. Remember, whether you're secular rebellion, whether you're religious, and we're all fitting one of those camps, we're all under the wrath of God, we've all fallen short, and that that Christ took that upon himself, the guilt, the shame, the sin upon himself. He, by his blood, became the slain lamb for us. Remember that language, slain lamb in Revelation? He became the burden of our wrath. He takes upon himself on the cross our sin, our shame, our guilt. He takes it, and in return, he gives us freedom. He gives us rest for our soul. He gives us hope and knowing the security we have in God. See, God doesn't wink at sin and evil. We can can consider the problem of evil in the world today, and the cross speaks to it more clearly than anything. He so detests evil that he dealt with it upon himself. He wrote himself into our story. He became like us, and he took on the wrath of God himself to deal with evil and sin, and he took it upon himself, and now he is both just Remember, just and true all your ways? Just and the justifier. See, he's just. He doesn't overlook sin and rebellion. And he's the justifier. He entered into our fractured story as the hero to fully and completely forgive and make new. See, he drank the cup of justice for us. And so just like the song in the Exodus, just like the song of Moses in Revelation 15, we hear, just and true are your ways. O king of the nations. See, the centerpiece of this book is the picture of this lamb in Revelation and how he is holding it all together and he's bringing about this redemptive plan. So the very one who's bringing wrath in these bowls that we read is also the very one who received our wrath. As I mentioned, this, this scene in Revelation 16 is gory and it's hard for us to understand, even confusing. But hear me, no scene is as gory as the cross of Jesus. 
And it's the cross of Jesus that helps us make sense of evil, helps us make sense of judgment, that God did all he could to relieve us of the fracture of sin. And in his justice, his judgment comes upon sin. We rioted against the one on the throne, and the lamb slain became the just one and the justifier. So as we land, friends, there is an expiration date to the wrath of God. Only a a matter of time, and it will be finished. And for all who have put their trust on the provision of Jesus, don't forget your inheritance. Don't forget what it means. Don't let the dragon, don't let the father of lies, don't let the accuser keep you from your inheritance, what was bought for you. We have a temptation, we, we can forget the active nature of the accuser of the brothers and the sisters who constantly is trying to remind us, you still deserve condemnation. You still deserve shame. He didn't do it all. Let your past define your present. And it's a reminder to us that there's a dragon that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Wants to take everything good from you. Wants to rip it out of your hands. Wants to take it back. And it's a reminder for us today that, man, we were once under condemnation, but now, because of Jesus, There's no condemnation. There's no shame. You don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to perform. Stop trying to perform. For those who have trusted in the provision of God, you're secure. You're loved. Mercy's been given. You don't need to use things to be a crutch for you. You can let go and simply be a a conduit of mercy because of the mercy that's been given to you. See, we're no longer under the judgment of our sin and our shame. Now the justice that's due those who trust in Jesus, the justice that's due us is steadfast love. What we deserve because of his grace is his love. It's marvelous that what is due us because of Jesus is not condemnation. What is due us is the tenderness and the love and the care and the mercy of God. That is what's due us. Why? Because Jesus paid it. That is our inheritance. We have a lamb who was slain. This is the beauty of this story for these churches, and this is the beauty of the story for us. Yes, wrath is coming. Yes, judgment is coming. And now there is still mercy for Us in this room, for those in this world, there is still mercy. And for those that have already put your trust in Jesus, allow that to be your crutch alone. Allow that to be the thing that you stand on, that the justice that's due us is the steadfast love of Jesus. So for the church of Jesus, for those who have put your trust in Jesus, don't forget your inheritance. Don't let the dragon steal from you. Don't let them take, don't let them rip it out of your hands. Cling to the truth of what Jesus has done for you. And when you're prone to wander, and you fall on your face, and you find yourself spiraling, beginning to trust in your own performance, and going back to how, man, my past really feels like it defines me, allow that sense of faith to wellow up within you. And remember, he's paid for everything. I'm loved, I'm secure, I'm cared for, I'm protected. I have a refuge in Jesus. He is now mine and I am his. I'm adopted and nothing can take me from his hands. Preach to yourself. Remember what is true. Don't let him steal from you. 
He will do anything to steal from you, to steal from your marriage, to steal from your family, to steal from your future. He will do whatever it takes. And we come to remember this story and remember there's a dragon that's trying to devour and to remember the cross, remember the resurrection, remember there's a day coming that the dragon will have a last and final day and he will then be in a rearview mirror and we can look forward to our days with our Father in heaven. We have to remember this over and over and over again. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And man, for those on the fence, for those who just don't know, man, I get it. I remind you that judgment will come, but the mercy of Jesus, who drank your judgment, is here today. It's the beauty of it. Because we're alive, there is still mercy. And we have the option to turn and to trust in Jesus, to put our hope upon him, to do that for our friends, to do that for our neighbors, to remind the ones we love the most that there is a better way. You don't have to try to perform. You don't have to try to prove yourself with what you do, with what you have, with what others say. You can rest in the fact that he's bought it all. And even for you today, that option is for you. For the church of Jesus, don't forget your inheritance. And for those on the fence, remember that the mercy of God is here today. Judgment will come, but it's here today. So choose today to trust in Jesus. I plead with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we don't understand your ways. We look at the situation in Ukraine and we don't understand. We see the sorrow and miscarriage and loss and betrayal and we don't understand. So much we don't understand. Help us to say, just and true are all your ways. Help us to remember that you haven't forgotten us, that you're with us. And that what you've paid for us actually matters. It actually shapes how we live. Lord, we give you thanks. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for drinking the cup. Jesus, we bless you. Blessing and honor and glory and power is yours. We bless you.